Hello, this is David Thompson. Today is September the 10th of 2014 on Wednesday at approximately 5.14 p.m. For those of you that are new, I just briefly want to mention that I am here seeking to speak what God is seeking to say to the body of Christ and to you as an individual that have, in God's foreknowledge, come across listening to this message. The Word of God commands us in 1 Peter chapter 4, if any man minister, or if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. So I am seeking to allow the Spirit of God to speak out of me, and as a result of that desire, I also cast lots before God on a particular chapter out of the Bible that God would have me speak from. Today I received Luke chapter 19. And I usually only spend about a half hour on whatever chapter, including the making of notes. In this case, it went for 45 minutes, which is rare and involve more notes. Uh, so it's Luke chapter 19. So I will begin first to read from Luke chapter 19. And Jesus answered, and Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was little of stature. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste, come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying, that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, forasmuch as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable, because he was nigh to Jerusalem, and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom. Then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over ten cities." And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said, Likewise to him, be thou also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man, austere man. Thou takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And he saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. 
Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury? And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it to him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. For I say unto you, that unto every one which hath shall be given. And from him that hath not, even that he hath shall be taken away from him. But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. And when he had thus spoken, he went before, ascending up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he was come nigh to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount called Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering ye shall find a coat tied, whereon yet never man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, Why do you loose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, Because the Lord hath need of him. And they that were sent went their way and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, Why loose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hast known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace. But now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee about and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. And he went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein, and them that bought, saying unto them, It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And he taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him and could not find what they might do, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. <clears throat> After a long reading, I always need to have a zip of water. In this first section of Luke, verses 1 to 10, there is a message that is this, that the self-righteous judge according to appearance, but that those that fear God in Christ rather judge by looking at the heart. Zacchaeus wanted to see Christ. 
He was a man that was not very significant outwardly, very small stature. And he didn't care what people thought because he had a real hunger to see Christ to the point that he climbed up into a tree. And I hope that back then they didn't have the government control that now is so evident in particular the United States with all the little bylaws that are being made, which are multitudes and uh, so many thousands that they say now almost everyone in the States has violated a law, a law without knowing it and is a criminal. Huh. So I wonder if they had some law. Oh, you're not supposed to go up in the trees. They're for decoration or whatever. But Zacchaeus had such a hunger that he didn't care. He wanted to see Christ. The word Zacchaeus means pure. And of course, when one would look at the occupation of Zacchaeus, a tax collector for the oppressing Roman government, and he's making all kinds of wealth, and they can see he's very wealthy, they're going to be very judgmental of them as a nation that is under the oppression of the Roman Empire, that this fellow would sell himself out, so to speak. I don't know if it's even so to speak, but they would perceive that he was selling himself out to the Roman government so he could be wealthy. And so there was judgment in these people's hearts towards this little man that would dare to get up on a tree to see Christ. But when Christ comes to the tree, we read in verse 8, pardon me, not verse 8, in verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. He didn't say to Zacchaeus, you know, take your time, Zacchaeus, get down from the tree, I'm coming to your house. He said, hurry up, Zacchaeus, get down from that tree. I'm coming to your house. And Zacchaeus made haste and received him with joy. But this is what caused all the people that had all this judgment in their heart towards him to murmur. And it says, and when they saw it, they all murmured. So here you've got all these people just a moment ago, saying, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord and casting him pole branches. And suddenly, and there was a few, of course, like the Pharisees marching with his crowd, thinking that the kingdom of God is going to immediately appear and the Roman government is going to be judged. So they're thinking, may these evil people like Zacchaeus Christ is going to judge him because he's coming to take over the kingdom from the Romans. This Zacchaeus character, what's he, how dare he get up in a tree? Maybe it's so God can look at him and burn him with the fire of his judgment. Who knows what was in their thoughts? The Pharisees are even murmuring that all the people are praising Christ. But here is Zacchaeus. And the Lord says, after he's joyfully received and all the people are murmuring that he's been, that Christ would go to be the guest of a sinner. Wow. What a shock to them. They were expecting the kingdom of God to immediately appear with power that would, and the fire that would come down from heaven and devour any Roman soldiers that would oppose them. They already saw the power of God through Christ in doing miracles. So there was a natural assumption that this must be the Messiah and that he is coming to take bring the kingdom of God down onto the earth. Christ had sent out his disciples. They'd cast out demons. They had already done powerful works in many towns. And so there was crowds that had heard about this. They were convinced it was the time for the shackle of Roman oppression to be cast off them. And Zacchaeus represented this Roman oppression to them. And the Lord says to to them all after their murmuring. He says this. He says, 
He says, Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for so much as he also is a son of Abraham. This was said in front of the people that had already clearly categorized Zacchaeus in their mindset, in their heart, with their own self-righteous judgments. Zacchaeus is actually going to be the one that Christ is going to come over to his house and stay at overnight. Or maybe even just eat a meal and go on. I don't know which. But this was a shock to all the people, especially that Christ would say that this day is deliverance come to your house. The man that has a wealthy house, way more wealth than them, that seems to be working for the Roman government against them. And here they're anticipating the Lord to liberate them from the oppression, the severe oppression of the Roman government. But Christ goes on and he qualifies the reason that he is going to Zacchaeus' house. And he says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so by Christ visiting Zacchaeus, going to his house, he makes known to him even more fully the good news of the gospel so that Zacchaeus comes into a greater relationship with the Lord. But he already was declared a son of Abraham even before Christ went to his house. Now, we know that in Galatians, Paul says that those that are of faith are the children of Abraham or the sons of Abraham. Often the word son and the word children are interchangeable in the New Testament because there's the same Greek word that is used. I haven't had time to check if that's the case with this. What did Christ see in Zacchaeus? He certainly was not someone that judged according to outward appearance. The word of God says in John 7, 24, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. But many of us are so quick to judge according to outward appearance because we have not entered into a relationship with God that brings us to see beyond the outward appearance. This is evident from Isaiah 11, 2-3. And there we read this. Concerning the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. That word quick means living, understanding. Understanding that is filled with the life of God that brings an understanding that transcends the human natural thinking. It happens when we are abiding in the fear of the Lord. And also, as a result of that, as it says here, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. 
And there's another passage in Isaiah that says, who is as blind as my servant speaking of the Messiah? And it goes on to say, seeing, not seeing anything and yet seeing more. Being so blind that he sees nothing and yet seeing more than anyone else. So to speak. this is not an exact quote, but in essence is what that those verses are saying. Zacchaeus, and I will I'm going to explain how the fear of God brings us into a relationship that sees beyond the natural understanding. And I want to bring out another verse in relation to this which is in Titus 15 to 16. And it says there, Unto the pure all things are pure. Remember, the word Zacchaeus, if you look it up, means my pure ones. Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. Purity of heart is necessary to see beyond the natural self-righteous tendencies of one's thinking and understanding that puts people into a box according to the things that they have seen outwardly about someone's life. I need to explain here about the fear of God. For those particularly that have not heard any of my messages, it is important that I lay a foundation in this part of the message so that you understand what the fear of God is and how important it is that we have it in our lives. In fact, it describes the Messiah, Christ, in Isaiah, in chapter 33, I believe, verse 5, 6. And it says there, that the fear of the Lord is his, is his treasure. Christ himself, who is God, manifest in the flesh, cherishes the fear of God above all things. And this is also evident in what I've just read about how the fear of God releases the life of God within our understanding so that it transcends our natural understanding with a renewing by the Spirit of God in our mind that sees beyond the natural. So first, let me explain the fear of God to those that are new. And in order to explain the fear of God, I must also briefly describe the being of God or the essence of the ultimate I am that I am. The, the essence of God who is the very ultimate reality and source of all life and existence. The one true God. The fear of God is a choice. It is coming to a place of openness to who God really is so that one acknowledges who God is in his being and is reciprocated to who God is in his being. Now to describe this being of God. God is love. That is clearly defined in 1 John. It is, that statement is made more than once. This love is the word agape, which is the highest form of love. It is more than just feeling, but it can contain certainly feeling and compassion and all those things. But this highest form of love is a choice that is always choosing the highest lasting good over any more immediate choice of fulfillment that would bring, obviously, an, a measure of, of corruption 
because it wouldn't be the best choice. God's love is totally of his own free volition, always choosing the highest lasting good. And it is a love that in these choices has such a purity and an integrity that it is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that would be contrary to such choices. This is the defensive aspect of the being of God known as the holiness of God. Yes, our God is a consuming fire of love because that love is so pure that it will consume, it has such great integrity that it will consume all that is contrary to it. I could go in and explain it in a lot more, but this is not the place for that. It is this aspect of the being of God that qualifies God to have that quality that can contain unlimited life and power without being corrupted by it or without it being dissipated by corruption, which would be that which would be less than love, less than the highest choices of the highest lasting good. This quality of the being of God, which is the holiness of God, is very pure. And because it has no corruption, because it judges all that would be contrary to it, it is the foundation from which God can express his love in creativity or in creating creation without corruption. I could go into a lot here and, and, and it could be a long message. But what I'm saying is this, is that the first aspect of the being of God is this holiness of God, this purity of his love. This represents a negative symbol in electricity. It can also represent, because it's a horizontal line, foundation. It is from that foundation that can spring forth creativity that can ever enlarge in greater and greater fulfillments and expressions of creativity and go on forever without end. Of course, when God created us with our own free will, our choices are the source of our own action and, of course, have corruption in it. But God's purpose is to bring our free will into harmony with his to someday become his corporate bride that is brought into perfection corporately, even as we as individuals are brought to that place. Now, this is just a brief description. So out of this foundation of holiness springs the creative expression of God, which is ultimately expressed in its greatest measure, and God's desire to have a corporate bride, which is ultimately focused in its greatest measure, in the fact that this love could be so pure that it could, that God himself could have the power to forgive those that are tempted if they repent and choose to receive his forgiveness. And that is indicative of the fact, the fact that he has the power to forgive and yet requires judgment, is indicative of the fact and, and draws the obvious deduction that could only be the right deduction, that God himself has the moral capacity within himself to become a perfect atoning sacrifice. For only God could take the judgment of creation upon himself. Only God could live a perfect sinless life, which would be necessary to absorb the judgment of his creation upon himself. So Christ came, who is the full expression of God into the time and space realm of God, that the Father who is the originator and sees the end from the beginning beyond the time and space realm, fully expressed into creation in personage and his son to rule within the creation realm. And Jesus Christ humbled himself and suffered more than you, a mere creature, and humbled himself more than you, a mere creature, 
and shed his blood so that you could be cleansed of your sin, that you could be forgiven and reconciled to God and become part of his corporate bride. If God could not, if God was not so pure, there could never be that foundation from which could spring the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God to assure destiny to his creation. And if God could not assure destiny to what he created, that would imply that he would be imperfect for he would have created a creation without purpose that could not enter into his purpose. The evidence that God is who he is is in the utter integrity of his love that requires judgment, but can at the same time from there spring forth with the power to assure forgiveness and destiny to his creation because of the power to provide mercy, because he has that moral capacity within him to become a perfect atoning sacrifice, which he did once for all in Jesus Christ on the cross. That's a bit of a lot to explain. So when people choose to fear God, they are not making a mere intellectual assent. They are choosing from the depths of their heart to recognize that God requires judgment, that they deserve judgment in hell, but that, that behind this holiness of God, there is the goodness of God that can be contained, that can go on forever and ever in greater and greater enlargement. That is unlimited power in life that is fully constructive unto meaning, ultimate meaning, purpose, and fulfillment. Basically, that's what goodness is. So here we have in these verses the Lord making it clear that it, he does not judge. It's obvious that he didn't judge Zacchaeus according to outward appearance. And Zacchaeus also represents those that are misunderstood but genuinely are God's people. Zacchaeus had a real genuine fear of God. He recognized his unworthiness, that he deserved the judgment of God. He says here in this passage, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. He's, he's saying to the Lord, Listen, Lord, I fear God. I don't, want, I don't ever allow myself to do things that are crooked. I, I recognize you are my God and that you require judgment. He recognized the holiness of God and he, reckoned, he obviously was open to Christ's message. And he preached forgiveness there was the woman that was taken in adultery. And I'm sure many of the people knew of the things that happened, such as this woman. So he knew, and he was open and hungry to meet this one that preached the judgment of God and yet preached forgiveness. Who is God manifest in the flesh? Jesus Christ. And the word Zacchaeus means pure. Now, in the fear of God, what is this? Well, I said that the Messiah, it says in Isaiah 33, 5 and 6, the fear of the Lord is his treasure. This must also be explained briefly. I've already slightly explained the triunity of the one true God, that for God to govern the three ultimate dimensions of existence, which is beyond time and space, in his creation are time and space, and filling all space. He is the Father that is the originator that sees the end from the beginning, and therefore he must be a personage beyond time and space to govern in that realm. And so, as such, he is the Father. And to judge within the time and space realm, in creation, he is the Son. God must be a personage within his creation. He must be in personage within his creation to judge within the creation realm and to have relation with creation. And so the son, which means expression, is the full expression of the father. Father means originator. Son means the expression of the originator. 
The word son basically means expression. And Hebrews 1.3 makes it clear that Jesus Christ is the full expression of the Father. Christ himself said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. And he also said, whoever has been taught of the Father comes to the Son. Now, how does one become taught of the Father in such a way that they are drawn to the Son, like Zacchaeus is here? For he is called the Son of Abraham. It is because those that have come to the place of recognizing the utter purity of God's love, that he requires judgment, and yet has the power to assure forgiveness. Those that recognize those two aspects of God's love, the negative and the positive, or the foundation, which is the negative, and then the thing that goes over it forming a cross, those that recognize that. And possibly Zacchaeus was like the publican for a the publican that Christ described that smote his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and repeated it and smote his breast and had his face in the dust of the earth and cried out with all his heart for the mercy of God. And Christ said, that man went down, went to his house justified before God because that is what is involved in the fear of God. It is a true belief. And the word belief in the Bible means moral persuasion, in who God is, so that it causes a reaching out of one's spirit from a clenched fist to a reception of openness to the mercy of God to receive it, recognizing their deserved judgment apart from the mercy of God. Or the son, first I should mention the son. The son chooses to recognize God. In other words, he he reverences God. He fears the Father. He looks at the Father and sees the beauty of his holiness, the beauty of the purity of his love. As King David said, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may behold the beauty of the Lord. It says we're to worship God in the beauty of holiness. So he sees the beauty uh, and the glory of God's purity of being that requires judgment on all that is corrupt and destructive. And, and so it says in the word that we're to give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. And Christ is filled with thankfulness and love and adoration at this beauty of the Father and this purity of his love. And he says, Father, I love you so much that I want to be enlarged in my love for you by going into a great condescension to suffer in order to bring forth a corporate bride for you. And so the father says to the son, son, I love you so much that I will gladly allow you to go and and suffer this separation so that you can bring, can inherit a beautiful corporate bride that you can experience in union with me. And so here is an illustration of the reciprocal relationship that comes out of the fear of God. It is the recognition, it is a reciprocation of the character of God in worship, in praise, that that first is the purity of his love and and the creativity that is perceived out of that, that is ultimately expressed in his power to forgive and provide mercy. And so, in this relationship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, there is the exercise of the fear of God. And in Isaiah 11, 2-3 here, we see clearly that when we enter into such a relationship with God, our own self-righteousness is broken that veils our eyes from seeing through the Spirit of God. As long as we have our own mindsets that are out of self, 
that are not coming from a pure heart, as mentioned in Titus 1, 15 to 16. When our heart is not pure, there's a defiling. There's unbelief. Even the conscience is defiled. And they will claim to know God, but their lives deny it. Because what they've done is they've made sacrifice more important than obedience in their relationship with God. This is because there's a mindset that wants to justify one's relationship with God as being acceptable and accepting of the things that really in their heart are what they want to do in, with their own life that is put in place of God's will in their life. So the Lord is wanting to teach us to come into a relationship with him where, like Christ, we do not judge according to outward appearance. But we experience such a reciprocation out of the fear of God that we are not quick to judge by natural understanding. You see, when you are in a place before God where you recognize who he is, through spending much time in prayer, through spending time in his word, through being still and knowing that he is God, there is an identity that grows in relationship with him. It says, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. The word wait means, in the original Hebrew, to be intertwined like a rope. There is an intertwining in identity with God. And in that intertwining of identity with God, one no longer cares what people think, what other people's attitudes are. They're only wanting what is genuine, what is real. It leads one to a place of great awe and of humility. That leads one, and that brings one into a place of great honesty and integrity before God and others. When you really have that full appreciation of who God is, that real love for God, you don't treat them, God is common. He is precious, he is special. When you really love someone, they don't, you don't just treat them in a common way. They are precious and they are special. And you treat them in such a way because there is such a respect and a love for them. And it is that reciprocation of relationship with God that is also going to translate into relationship with your fellow man and with your fellow believers. There will be the same tendency to look upon one another with great respect, to look beyond the outward things in one's neighbor or one's fellow believer that are not sanctified, that are offensive to you, and to see the inner being of that person because there's the desire, there's the love there, there's the understanding of how great God's mercy is to them. And when you see how great God's mercy is to you, how can you not but want to show the same mercy to others, the same love to others? instead of treating them in a way that hurts them and cuts them off. Recognizing that you can be used to love them. If they are offended or they are 
do things that offend you, you can go to them even though they're more in the wrong and you can say things maybe even where you've been wrong and apologize to them even though more, they're more in the wrong. And it will break the barrier down. Christ condescended and suffered more than you, a mere creature, so that you could be reconciled to God. And when you perceive that and the reality of God's mercy to you, there is that same love for one another. It's the love that is seen in the woman that broke the alabaster box at Christ's feet and the woman that wiped the tear with the tears of her hair his feet in appreciation for being forgiven for so much and thanking God for wanting to show thankfulness. The same Christ has called us to do is to wash one another's feet, even literally as a practice to learn to esteem others better than ourselves, but also spiritually to wash one another's feet of the filth of those things that are offensive in one another to us personally. When we do that, there is a knitting together that can take place in the body of Christ. And there is the infusion of revelation into us of who God is, where we begin to see the wholeness that comes out of the holiness of God by seeing with the eye of our heart who God is and also seeing out of that wholeness the beauty and the glory of God. And that helps us as a result, as the veil in our heart is rent by the deep turning in our heart through waiting on him, through crying out to him and calling on him. As that deep veil is rent through spending quality time seeking God, It is also not only rent in the revelation of who God is, but to see the image of God in one another, the potential image that can come forth so that we are motivated and impelled by love to not judge according to appearance, but to endure with one another until through our prayers and our love for one another and through sharing one another's faults, we are healed and we are knit together in the love of God. This is how, through the fear of God, we do not judge according to outward appearance or reprove after the hearing of our ears, as it says in Isaiah 11, 2 and 3 of Christ the Messiah. He heard what God was saying, not what man was saying about other people. He was looking on the heart. It is amazing that I've only got to the first 10 verses in this passage when I could preach for probably another possibly two or more hours to finish all the points in this message. I will briefly mention the other parts of this chapter and how they tie together. The next section of this chapter is in verses 11 to 27. And I mentioned briefly here that those that have lost their fear of God justify and receive leadership that feeds their idolatrous perception of God and their life of covetousness justified by mere religious practice without any genuine relationship with God. That is the essence of that section of Scripture. And in verses 20 to 23, it describes the servants. But it makes a point here of the importance, again, of the right perception of God or choosing to perceive God right, which is a choice to fear God, to reverence God. In first his holiness, recognizing the utter purity of his holiness and the beauty of it, And it says this, that the servant that did not allow what God had given his life to have, buried it in his own interests. Why? Well, it says here in verse 21, for I fear thee because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that thou 
layest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And he saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Often believers are offended at the holiness of God, at the severity of God. Paul the Apostle said, Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Yes, the God in the New Testament is the same as the God before Christ in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there is the importance of recognizing and receiving and recognizing the beauty and the holiness of God, not becoming like Cain, who was offended at the consequences of God's judgment, the consequences of his holiness, the required judgment in the curse that he had to endure. And so he began to perceive God as an enigma. Yes, he was holy, he was demanding. In this case, we're using the word austere in this passage. Therefore, he withdrew. Didn't seek God. Didn't seek a relationship with God. He began to perceive God as a dictator, but lost sight of the goodness behind the holiness of God. He began to perceive of a different God, a God that was demanding, but he didn't see the goodness of God. And because he didn't see the goodness of God out of the holiness of God, he did not perceive the mercy of God. If he had perceived the mercy of God, he would have cried out to him for mercy and recognized his need of God. But he lost he instead withdrew, instead of seeing his need of God, he withdrew and began to look at God as an enigma, as a mystery. So then you begin to form an idolatrous image of God and you perceive God as austere and demanding certain laws and rules and you've lost sight of any relationship with him and of his mercy and of your need of his mercy. You've justified, well, all I have to do to satisfy this God is to perform certain things that would truly satisfy him that I can do, easily do. Maybe involves real sacrifice too, but that you can achieve. The same happened with the Ten Commandments. God's intention was not that they would end up making an idol out of the Ten Commandments and being so focused on the Ten Commandments that they would be trusting in their own righteousness through focusing on that instead of having a relationship with God. God wanted them to love him with all their heart and being and strength. And I can't go into explaining all of that. But this is what happened to this servant. He began to have a wrong perception of God that allowed him to justify a life that was totally self-serving and self-worshipping. Whatever you ultimately trust is where you're putting your worth and your glory. So if you're trusting in your own righteousness, you are in a state of self-worship and pride. The just, that also allows justification of you being the center of your life rather than God. And yet believing that you are pleasing God, persuading your mind that you are acceptable to God because the God you've formed in your mind is idolatrous. It is not the God that is ultimately holy and ultimately transcendent in mercy and the power to provide forgiveness. There's too much in this passage of Scripture and time is going on, but I will continue to just briefly mention the, the points in this chapter. Christ obviously gave this parable of the servants the ones that were faithful and the one that wasn't, that had a wrong perception, 
because he perceived God as a steer, but that's all he saw, is that he was a steer. Christ obviously anticipated that he would be rejected this first time. It is amazing that there was a teaching at that time among various religious groups, I believe also the Pharisees, that they've discovered where they believed that there was going to be a suffering Messiah and a reigning Messiah. You would have think they would have acknowledged that. But no, most of them were not open to recognizing that Christ was coming this first time to be the suffering Messiah and that he was one and the same. They thought it was two different messiahs. Well, I guess two different comings could be interpreted as two different, but it isn't because there's only one God. And they believe that. Now, in verses 28 to 40, coming in humility is coming in God's name instead of ours. When we come on our own name, then people accept us. But when we come in humility so that God's name is abiding in us, the tendency is for human nature to reject us. Christ mentioned this in John 5, 43 to 44, but I know you, that you have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. And then here's the secret in verse 44. How can you believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that comes from God only? An evidence of the lack of fear of God is that we would seek honor from one another. An evidence that one has not really been birthed out of the fear of God into a new nature or been born again is in a motivation to seek glory for ourselves from others more so than the glory of God, so that it becomes the main factor. And this works out in many subtle ways. And I could talk for some time in this, but I'll give you an example. I've been in different movements in my life where God has asked me to be, to be part of churches, where there's been things that have limited God in a hierarchy that has not been under the headship of Christ. And what happens is one group will develop a certain form of worship. And if you don't worship the same way as they do, then you're given the cold shoulder. But everyone is conforming to one another and they are violating their integrity and their relationship with God because they're more concerned about about being accepted of one another than being real before God and one another. And so they become like a bunch of bricks that look the same, that are homogenous, because they're putting their identity more in their leader and in one another rather than in their relationship with God, which means that they're not really speaking the truth in love and they're not really in genuine love speaking the truth to one another. The two requirements for genuine unity are speaking the truth in love. And you cannot speak the truth in love if you have not been receptive to the holiness of God, which is the manifestation of God's truth. And which is the manifestation of God's purity of love, of God's purity, of God's holiness. I've been in other groups where they make you feel if you don't ex if you if you don't want to get caught up in an ecstasy of laughter, and you don't start laughing like the others, they make you feel like well, you're less spiritual. I guess you're still like the the religious people that are so self righteous, and they try to make you look like you're not very spiritual. And so people begin wanting to conform to a certain form of worship, whether it's the laughter church or whatever other denomination or whether it's some doctrine. It may have started out in revival, but by the third generation ends up being a doctrine instead of more of a, something that came out of a relationship of revelation with God. And so it's enshrined, and pretty soon there's a hierarchy that forms around the doctrine 
and there's all kinds of security and self-glory and self-interest that forms around enshrining this doctrine and someone comes along with a greater revelation and they're given the cold shoulder. There are many churches today that do not receive other believers that are slightly different or more different in their persuasion. Christ commanded us to receive one another as he received us as sinners. But if we're all seeking honor from one another, there's not a genuine persuasion of the heart, which is what the word believe means in the New Testament. It's from the word Greek word pistis, which means moral persuasion. There's not a moral persuasion in God. It's rather a persuasion that is mo motivated more in identity with one another. Well, I could go on. <laughs> the message is getting really long, but I will just make quickly the last points of this chapter. Those that have fallen into mere religious self-righteousness, this is verses 41 to 48, make God's place of worship a place of mere intellectual knowledge and religious routine instead of heart knowledge and relationship. Rather than a place of pure worship and prayer. And that's basically what does happen. There is in most typical churches today a tendency to love to be joyful, and I'm all for the joy, and I know there's liberty in Christ. But if you want deep joy and you want great liberty, learn to enter in to fearing God in the sense that I'm talking about. Being reciprocative of who God is. Learning to, to feed a reciprocative relationship with God of being in awe of who he is in humility before him. If people in churches are worried and most of them complain that there's so few people that come to the prayer meeting, I suggest that whether there is or is not, that you start the, wor the your worship service, your time of assembly on your faces and on your knees before God, learning to pray together as a body of believers and to cry out from the depths of your heart, learning to be still and know he is God and enter into being aware of God being in your midst so that you do not become presumptuous and glib in his presence, but are uh, sensitive to the dove of the Holy Spirit coming into your midst. And when you start your church as a house of prayer, God will move in the power of his Holy Spirit. Christ said in this passage of scripture, the key part in this last section, 41 to 48, is what Christ said. He went into the temple, verse 45, and began to cast out them that sold therein and them that bought saying unto them, It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And many nowadays have turned from God's house being a house of prayer, a house of worship, as is described also in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. And I'll just briefly mention that passage as well. In Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1, it says, Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God, and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth, therefore let thy words be few. This is talking about the house of God. Paul the Apostle said that we need to know how to behave in the house of God, which is the pillar and the ground of truth. And when we choose to enter in to genuine worship, 
that brings forth genuine expression of his love towards God and towards one another. There will be the genuine spirit of prophecy which will build up, which will edify, which will bring us in to the unity of the faith that is described in Ephesians of the knowledge of the Son of God. In relation to this house of prayer, it is significant to know what it says in Isaiah 56, 6-8. Also the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, every one that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and taketh hold of my covenant, even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. The church is to be a house of prayer. The gathering together onto Christ is a place where we gather together in humility and the fear of God, waiting on him, learning to pray, learning to turn from the depths of our heart and seek him until his glory fills the house. And he says, for mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all people in Isaiah 56, verse 7, the last part. The Lord which gathereth the outcasts of Israel saith, yet will I gather others to him besides those that are gathered unto him. And often it is the outcasts like Zacchaeus and others that are misunderstood and misjudged by the religious that have a pure heart for God. And of course, there was such an anger in God, in Christ, that his house had become a den of thieves, that he took a whip and told him to get out because his house is a house of prayer. And God is wanting to his people to turn to him so that this won't happen this time. So that this time he can return with a visitation of his presence and shadow us with his presence and put his wings over us and the skirt of his garment over us and bring us into marriage with him. Paul had great conflict that their hearts would be, of course, first knit together with God. The Almighty's one. And with one another. His conflict was that they would be knit together onto the riches so that they would enter into the riches of the full assurance of understanding of the mystery of the Father and of the Son, which is what I am talking about. That union between the Father and the Son that comes out of the fear of God that he wants in us as well so that we will love one another, so that we will not judge according to outward appearance and become denominational and not receive others that don't maybe see things the way we do or aren't that charismatically attractive. Oh, I could go on talking for a long time here, but the message has gone longer than normal by far already, so I must finish. But I have a message here, and it is that the body of Christ would repent of denominationalism, of control, of not letting God's people function in their gifts. Oh, there's so much to share in this. There's no time. So God bless you all, and I'll look forward to sharing again. Thank you for listening to this message.